Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, second-year child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hey, guys. And second-year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Good evening, Dr. Parks. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to talk about death anxiety. So it's a cheery show to start the year. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, does this does de- anxiety about death factor into mental health conditions? Do you see it? Do you all see it in your clinical practice? I do from time to time. How do you deal with it when it comes up? Um, how do you treat it? Do you, do you look at it as a subset of symptoms or do you, do you really feel there's an existential anxiety about death that powers and fuels some of the problems that we see psychologically? Um, and also maybe I think, I think it's good to talk about just our own experience with death because, you know, frankly, I do feel that if a clinician has a, a high level of death anxiety, it does hinder talking about it with clients. Mm-hmm. So yeah, what is, I agree. Yeah, and so, you know, and there's a difference. This is a generational difference. I, I'm roughly a double your, y'all's age. But I did realize, uh, and so, that, you know, I, I, I think of death differently than I did when I was a kid but, um, and when I was younger. But I do notice that the research shows that uh, the older people, even though they're closer to death, do not generally have more death anxiety. But how much do you see this in your practice, Tosha Allen? I would say, Aaron, that I have seen more of this in my practice when I was working as an internal medicine resident doctor with patients who were getting close to dying and some of whom I think had not really, were really on different pages about where their health was at, despite in some cases years of having terminal diseases like particularly congestive heart failure and COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease that seem to have not fully understood the the picture of what these diseases meant for them. I did see that in the research, actually, that people with medical conditions like COPD and, and cancer definitely fear of death, death anxiety comes up quite a bit. How did you deal with it when it did come up? Well, there is a lot of trying to convince people that you're on their side. What happens is this ends up being kind of a brokerage of conversations about death and about the threshold for when living is no longer the right choice and what to do after a cardiac arrest, whether patients want us to revive them or whether they want us to allow them to pass naturally. And as the doctor, we have recommendations that are fairly straightforward about whether we recommend CPR after someone's heart has stopped, you know, when they have, let's say, three different causes of death, the only time that it works to try to resuscitate someone's heart, and even then it really works quite rarely, but the only time it works is when their heart was the only reason that they were going to stop living, and it was kind of a fluke. So you come in as a doctor and you say, hey, I'm so sorry, this is what I'm recommending. It doesn't seem like um, things are going to go well in the case of a of a cardiac arrest, um, and it's sort of 
it's just about a worst case scenario, but it gives them the flavor of how you're thinking the hospitalization is going to go, the fact that you're even bringing it up, right? Even though we're really supposed to be bringing it up with everyone. And you find yourself trying to convince them that you're on their side and you have their best interests in mind and talking about how broken rigs, ribs happen in these resuscitation attempts. Um, but the family often feels like you are trying to sell them short, trying, feels like you're trying to just give up early. And so so it's the a family, hard position. Yeah, the family's anxiety about death and maybe a difficulty talking about it or thinking about it kind of uh, really uh, adds to a difficulty in discussing some of these end-of-life issues and yeah. whether to resuscitate loved ones and things like that. And the anxiety just so quickly precipitates into this righteous anger i mean it, what feels better than fighting against the evil doctor for your family member who is in too awkward of a social situation to fight for themselves you you know the some you can really kind of imagine yourself a hero when you there's no accountability you can yell at the doctor and ask for all these treatments that you know nothing about and and um it feels good it, it's like why didn't you give this why didn't you give that um and and the doctor is bound to kind of you know, follow treatment plans and make sense, but it can be a cathartic uh, kind of last heroic stand, I think, to yell at the, the deliverer of the bad news that someone's dying. Wow. Yeah, you kind of took it in a direction I wasn't foreseeing that the way that you deal with and address death anxiety mostly is is from family members of I was not foreseeing that, that I was going to go there either <laughs> at all. <laughs> Just, yeah, but you yeah. bring up a really good point. The this it provides the opportunity to be angry about death and about the fact that their loved one is dying and it, it doesn't look like there's much that that can be done and you're the target because you're right there and you're telling them the bad news. Yeah, and you've you've felt that that I I have sympathy for you right now, Alan. Well, luckily there's a really great thing called the Spikes Criteria, um, which is an acronym for some things that can be done for how to deliver the bad news. And I won't go into it on this episode, but it could be cool to do on another episode. Um, and it, it makes it so that if you take the time and you really do it right, you can usually leave feeling like they know you care. That sounds interesting. I mean, I think that what this brings to light is just how much death anxiety isn't necessarily uh, focusing on the effects that it has on the individual, but also on the people left behind, the survivors. Yeah, that's, that's the impact. Uh, so, I mean, it's important that, you know, this, this kind of says, like, this is how one of the ways that to deal with uh, death is through is being angry about it and just not wanting to accept it. Yeah, I mean some some patients have anxiety about death because they feel like they're putting a burden on their family members or they're not sure how their family is going to, you know, make ends meet, pay for their hospital bills or um if they're uh if there's a certain family dynamics how the relationships will hold up if they leave if they pass that's an interesting that sort of the, the thing you mentioned first the fear of um how it will affect one's family members for one to pass is really 
death anxiety in its purest form. So much of what we think of as death anxiety is actually anxiety about the process of dying. And that can really flip on a dime when the the factors change, like someone learns the, the cost of their hospitalization. Um, the fear of, of the process of dying can quickly change to a fear of, of prolonged life. Do you feel like uh, you've had your own experience and you've worked out your own anxiety about death? And at what age did you do that? I'm just kind of curious right now because it does affect your work. I feel it does affect my work. So I think that this is going to be flavored a lot by our cultural backgrounds. For me, you know, I've mentioned that I was raised in a Buddhist family, um, specifically Jodo Shinshu Buddhist. And, uh, our our relationship to death is that it's just a natural part of life just like birth is um and through acceptance of that we can limit the suffering surrounding death um so for me i've i personally haven't had a lot of death anxiety and i don't know if it's because of that tradition um or because i'm you know uh relatively young I think as I get older and face my mortality, that's it's possible that my death anxiety might go up. I, I know you mentioned that it goes down, but um, I don't know. That's oh, there's no there's not much difference between older folks and but it does depend on if you have you know things like COPD or, and just uh, you know uh, health conditions that can trigger that. Yeah, definitely with COVID, my death anxiety has gone up. Um, but this is a you know. Uh, hopefully temporary phase we're in right now before like uh then then previously then you haven't dealt with this this level of fear of death oh in the past two weeks my death anxiety has gone up immensely i mean just like i was telling you um reading the emergency medical services uh la county um, statement saying that if there's an adult patient, meaning 18 years or older, who has cardiac arrest on the field, the ambulance shows up, the team attempts to resuscitate that that individual, they can't resuscitate them, they will not take them to the hospital. That was just, that just came out this past week. In an effort to, to, to limit traffic going to the hospitals because there's just so many COVID patients that they, they're limiting um, other services provided, essentially. I don't want to get too far off track, but do, do you kind of think like, wow, that could be me or that could be a family member? Is that how you yeah. think about it? Oh, okay. Yeah, I told my boyfriend, I'm like, please be careful when you're driving or skating or anything. <laughs> please be extra careful. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no. Uh, now, you mentioned, uh, uh, and go ahead and jump in, Alan, when you want to, but you mentioned uh, a little bit about religion. Now, does it, uh, do you, does it shock you or does it interest you that um, people with organized religious beliefs either had n- no difference in death anxiety or more death anxiety than people without religious beliefs? Wait, sorry, but, say that again? Okay, that people with organized religious beliefs who, who, who participate in organized religion either had no difference in death, no lower difference in death anxiety but some studies showed they had actually a little bit higher death anxiety and people with spiritual beliefs in the, in the same study that showed that people with spiritual beliefs mm-hmm. like this kind of personally constructed kind of beliefs about spirituality had less death anxiety it's got to be the people with the spiritual beliefs wait are we talking about religious versus spiritual or yes. religious and spiritual compared to nothing 
but a little bit of both. I, I threw both in there that there was no difference. Like some studies showed no difference between people that have um, that were religious and people who are not religious. There's, there's basically no difference. But some studies show that people with or, believes in or who are practitioners of, of organized religion have a little bit higher death anxiety. Oh, that's so surprising. And in that in that same study, that uh, people with spiritual beliefs or you know, kind of these personally constructed beliefs about spirituality and things like that had lower levels of death anxiety. Do you feel that makes sense? Do you feel it? You get where why that, that makes happened. sense. I mean, we've talked about before. God, how many times now? I don't know, but we talked about before how psychedelics have been used to um, treat death anxiety in the terminally ill, specifically at Harvard and Harvard UCLA. Um, some good results. Both psilocybin and MDMA have been used to do this, um, and studies are still ongoing. But uh, as we've talked about, psychedelics. Uh, induce a spiritual experience and and they've been shown to reduce death anxiety so oh, wow. that, yeah that does make sense to me uh, can i add a little bit of something since you put you two interested in this it seems like that this uh, study in 2009 found that the people that had religious beliefs that were more dogmatic uh more um uh, uh rigid i'll say they had the most death anxiety. So the more dogmatic and rigid your religious beliefs were, the more anxiety about death you had. That makes sense. I think growing up in a judgy pants situation, you're going to have, I think your anxiety levels about everything are probably going to be higher because judgment is a high energy, high anxiety state to have to walk around in. Sounds kind of... Did, did it, they talk about? Like did that. they differentiate between the religions? Because I would imagine if it's like if your belief is that you're going to go to heaven or hell based off of your life choices, I would have a lot of anxiety approaching death. But um, you know, it, yeah. Does it did it differentiate? They they didn't. Um, they're getting probably getting in a hot hot water. <laughs> Is this they, where Tosha's going to tell us which religion is the best? Is I, the right one that's going to get us into heaven? I vote for that Buddhist one that you said that I couldn't understand when you said it really quickly. <laughs> no, but I, I, yeah. Which is it, Tosha? <laughs> I'm just saying that I think that my uh, upbringing had a lot to do with um, the fact that I just really, up until COVID, haven't had a lot of anxiety surrounding death. I'm going to, again, speak from my own experience that I was great. I was raised a fundamentalist, like I've said, you know, fundamentalist Baptist person. I had a lot more fear of death when I was younger than I do now. And, and now I am an agnostic. I, I do not. I'm not a fundamentalist anymore. And I, I did not realize until reading that study that it might have been due to my religious beliefs. <laughs> I did not realize that. It, perhaps it, it did. So you're saying that when you were younger, you were more. Afraid. Oh, for sure, one hundred percent. I I, I actually remember. So, yeah, that's so interesting. I remember distinctly when I first developed a fear of death. I was uh, in kindergarten and I watched the movie. I watched this kind of a uh, horror movie, and there was some dying going on. And I remember waking up at night and like thinking, "Oh my God, I'm going to die. I am going to die." And I'm going to my mom and saying that. I remember you telling this story, I think, at the Halloween episode. I don't remember. Yeah, yeah I remember this. Perhaps perhaps I did, because it scares me to this day. Yeah. <laughs> if you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're talking about death anxiety, uh, maybe some of the studies we have uh, that are out there, our own personal experiences, and just how we treat it. Um, I'm going to also, if I if I may, if you can indulge me, I'm going to say like why my anxiety about death has decreased as I grown, I've grown older. It, one thing was a friend of mine said, well, when you die, like you, you, that's it. Like you don't, 
you don't feel anything, you don't know anything, so it doesn't really matter. And like, huh, I, I don't know why, because I, I guess it was my, I just, I just kind of grew up having the idea or the belief that my consciousness continues after death. So, so like that made it worse for you. That made the that, anxiety worse. That, that my consciousness continues, yes. But the fact that death is the end, then it really doesn't matter. It's the end, so nothing matters. You don't think about things. You just don't exist anymore, so why would it matter? Why, why would your death matter? That helped me not be so scared of death. Um, you know, the other thing was kind of using kind of the idea of, well, don't have regrets. Just, you know, live your life as best as you can without feeling like if you're in your deathbed, you don't want regrets. So I feel like that has helped me too. I don't, I feel like I don't have regrets. I feel like, you know, I pretty much tried everything I wanted to try. There's, there's this three part formula that a, an open course I was listening to that some of the Ivies have like all of their coursework posted for free online. I was watching one about fear of death. It was just like an undergrad lecture and they had, in order to feel fear, you have to have a bad thing. You have to have, that's one. You have to have a a considerable, non-negligible chance that that bad thing can happen. That's two. And then you have to have uncertainty. So apparently after a while, if something is totally certain that it's going to happen every day and this unpleasant stimulus happens to you every day, you stop having fear and you start having sadness and anger and other things, right? And um, I see some of that in, in what you're talking about and also kind of about um, fearing the process of death versus fearing the death, which death itself is arguably not really a bad thing. Um, but I see this in my own life when I, uh, <laughs> when I visit my grandfather... And he drives, um, which he should not be, uh, <laughs> but he, he, he drives. Um, and he, he, you know, he's, he's always been a great driver, um, just differently than I would drive. And I found, <laughs> um, I found that by accepting, rather than it being that third condition, right, by changing from uncertainty to acceptance of a certain possibility, my fear goes away. So I tell myself, it's okay. I've had a great life. I'm going to die now. And I do that when I get in the car with him. And then I just can sort of enjoy the ride. It, it's akin. I remember wow. this scene from Fight Club oh, where yeah. uh, the where Tyler Durden is, is steering Edward Norton's character into like off the road. And he's like, just accept it. Like, it's just going to happen. And <laughs> boy, yeah, that's a microcosm of life right there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, you really don't so know. It's like an acceptance that your life has been good and and it's okay. I there, so I was reading that um, Gesser Wong and Raker in 1988 talked about three types of death acceptance that can be kind of focused on to help people through death anxiety. One is escape acceptance, um, embracing death as a welcome escape from the suffering and pain of one's life. Approach acceptance, which is accepting death due to one's beliefs about the existence of a desirable afterlife, and then neutral acceptance, which is accepting death as a neutral part, a natural part of life, and something outside of one's control. Which apparently, through their studies, produces the lowest levels of death anxiety. What do you guys think about those three types of acceptance? Wow. Well, from my standpoint, the neutral one sounds the most accurate, and I feel like 
Buddhism would tell us and Taoism would tell us that the simplest and least painful path is to accept things as they are. I mean, I think certainly life is easier when your map of the world is an accurate map. Yeah, I, I would agree uh, too. Um, I feel like, you know, when this comes up with clients, like I've had clients say um, that they're afraid of death. And I, I've actually treated a person where that was a big part of their issues. Um, this person was having panic disorders and a lot of the panic was triggered by death anxiety, by anxiety about dying, and that it would be triggered by things that would remind him of death, which would be things like lying still in the dark would remind him of death or being on his deathbed. And so maybe we could, and I, you know, I did treat him and it did work out well. And I, I would like to know how you all have dealt with that, or you know, when a, when a client talks about, I'm afraid of dying, doc. Right. I mean, so I don't have patients coming in directly saying it that way. It, it's a lot of it is in um, anxiety disorders, such as a fear of um, worrying about their own safety, their family's safety excessively, um, maybe even to the point of developing some compulsions. Like I had a, a patient who um, would pray, would say a prayer in her head, um, you know, X number of times, because if she didn't do that, then she, something would, something horrible would happen to her children, even though she didn't even believe in prayer. I think I've talked about this patient before, but yeah, so it can take the form of OCD. It can take the form of panic attacks. Um, even PTSD, you've come so close to the brink of death or someone else has, or you've witnessed it that now it's just ever present on your mind. Um, or, um, Illness anxiety disorder, um, uh, which is hypochondriac, which is what hypochondriacs have, or somatic symptom disorder, all those revolve around health and um, uh, death. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because when I looked at the research, there is a very close association between health anxiety or what you're saying, hypochondriasis or um, uh, you know, illness, anxiety disorder, things like that, and death anxiety. There's a very close relationship with that. There's a uh, there's a lot of uh, people that have panic disorder that have um, a death anxiety. And you know, just do you all know what the population level is out there? Like, how many people say, "I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of death." What, no, what would your What would your guess be? Um, no one knows. Twenty percent. I guess 20, I guess 19%, 19.5. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you've played this game before. 16%. Okay. 16%. That's pretty, that's pretty accurate. You, you, yeah. you, you all did a pretty good job with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, and then 3.8 said that they have an intense fear of death. Okay. All the time. And yes, you're right. It has to do with like, yeah, it can be triggered by trauma. Like you were saying, P- PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, or, you know, health scares are health scares for a loved one will often trigger death anxiety yeah. for mm-hmm. the loved one or themselves either mm-hmm. either one mm-hmm. um i i see a lot of kids who have anxiety um after a parent uh was constantly going to the hospital or had some significant illness or chronic medical condition or you know some some big health or safety issue how do you a help lot of kids with anxiety with that like what do you say um, I recommend therapy, first and foremost. That's what I recommend. Oh, so you 
being the person trained in therapy recommend therapy for them? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that's the thing. We we mostly more dedicated therapy. You mean uh, yeah? Okay, I see. I see what you're saying. Like yeah, every every individual week therapy. therapy yeah. yeah. Um, and then I check in, obviously, to see if there's a point where their symptoms aren't being reduced just simply with the therapy and then see if medications would help. But in, talk, in, in looking up different things that can be used to help for uh, death anxiety, there's um, something called dignity therapy that I had heard about, but I didn't really know the full practice of it. But um what it is is it's used in the terminally ill and it's just a really brief intensive session uh, or course of therapy which can be done in one one session um, just kind of a a longer session Uh, but what they do is the doctor or the therapist reviews with the patient the kind of a course of the patient's life their strengths highlights from their life the patient is the one like giving this narrative um and they uh also ask the patient about what their hopes and dreams are um both for themselves but also maybe for their survivors their family members um and ask if they have any specific instructions that they want to give to their survivors um and this could be what I read is that it could be recorded and it can be actually passed on to the survivors upon death as a, a way to help in the mourning process and also a, serves as a comfort to the the patient themselves, knowing that there's, you know, a piece, some, something important, some important piece of them that's going to live on and, and be passed to their loved ones. Um, and it showed through studies that in cancer patients specifically, there was a reduction in death anxiety with dignity therapy. Wow, Tosha, I love that idea. And Sounds I would great. love to see that. I feel like what, what what a great thing that I'd love to see some studies applying that to non-death anxiety topics as well. Like how, I wonder if you could get someone out of pre-contemplative into action so that pre-contemplative is a fancy kind of medical ease word for when someone's in denial about their addiction or another life change. I wonder if just by addressing someone's dignity you could and talking about what they're proud of in their life, you could get them places on their own. I, I feel like there's so many contexts where people just need a little more dignity in the medical relationship. I mean, I think that there, I like, first of all, that it's called dignity therapy. I think that says a lot about what the aim is. Um, and I agree with you, Alan. I, I I would say that it is a part of motivational interviewing, focusing on a patient's strengths, their values, and using that as kind of an inspirational tool to draw on their internal motivational drive. Um, but yeah, maybe something as specifically procedural as this could be helpful in that. I agree with you, yeah. Uh, I, I told you, I don't see this as procedural i see i mean what i'm picturing here is like an hour or a 30 minute session where you're you're really letting the patient paint a picture of the highs and the lows of their life and make it Mm -hmm. rich and make it unstructured and you're helping them bring out what they love about themselves and their lives but you know in motivational interviewing i mean motivational interviewing is really cool and it's 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 such a step forward from you know, basically hating patients for their perceived moral failing of addiction and, and transitioning to seeing addiction as a disease that we can help with is fantastic. But the biggest concession we might give in motivational interviews is like, oh, you're a, you know, you're a great dad and 
how might, um, you know, we might ask them like, how, how has your addiction led you to potentially miss some sporting events with your daughter or having them bring up some things from their life. But it's, it's only at insofar as it serves the purpose of the motivational interview. And it's, it's, it's quickly sliding forward towards the goals of, of the therapist. How cool would it be if before the motivational interview started, we did an, an hour of dignity therapy? Yeah, I think yeah, the, it's almost like a way to increase the person's value and reasons for living and the value that their life has had, the impact that it's had. Mm, I think it addresses kind of the, the Erickson life stages. It's a kind of an end-of-life death anxiety uh, intervention that's very effective. Mm-hmm. I've got to say, before we leave, we don't have too much time left, but you know, when someone that does not have a lot of uh, end-of-life concerns, but that just it, this pops up, uh, one of the, the most effective approaches is exposure therapy for death anxiety. And also just balancing that with reducing um, exposure therapy would be what indicates or what leads you to have death anxiety. So is it reading obituaries? Is it going to, um, you know, funerals and, um, uh, you know, cemeteries and things like that? Is it just thoughts about death so that you would work with the pay, a client to purposely think of these things or purposely go to uh, you know cemeteries or read obituaries until their their tension or their anxiety with death reduces there's also complementary treatment that has to do with correcting any thoughts about uh, death or the potential probability of them dying very painfully um, also balancing it with just enjoyable activities because sometimes death anxiety will dominate a person's thinking all throughout the day. And so you definitely want to help that person um, engage in enjoyable activities at the same time. Uh, Ken, I, I, before we go, I know I'm dominating things right now, but uh, before uh, we go, I want to say that if you have, uh, you have you have a death anxiety or you know someone has death anxiety or you want to kind of manage these things, there's some good books out there. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote a book called Death, The Final Stages of Growth. And Sherwin Newland wrote a book, How We Die in 1994. Those are really good books if you want to kind of... Uh, you know, uh, work through or process your own um, thoughts about death. And that is all the time we have uh, for this week on Let's Get Psyched. Today we talked about death anxiety, our own experiences with it and treatment of it with clients. Thank you to our co-host, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi, Dr. Alan Atkins. Special thanks to also goes out to our producer, Elliot Fong, KUCR. If you have comments, questions, suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. That's getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. And you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. Let's get psyched.